Oh, there it is. Anyway, hey, welcome to welcome to Politicor. Uh, but I get up again. You ain't ever gonna bring me down. I get knocked down. Fuck, dude, I fucking love that fucking song. I put that in the workplace group chat all the time. Nobody thinks it is funny. It's uh, you know, it's this it's the song of a generation. Yeah, okay, there's this movie about like a bunch of guys that go to cheerleading camp. It's like one of those like problematic funny teen sex comedies of the 2000s. Shawshank Redemption? Uh, no. I don't think so. Maybe. Okay, I haven't seen it. Dude, there's just one it's like and like they put that song in the soundtrack and it's just like a bunch of bros like driving down the highway and he's just like, "Oh man, this is the soundtrack to my life." I don't know. That's yeah. nothing. N- nothing has resonated with me. I've I've been spiritually. I've been in that car, my entire adult life. I envy you. Yeah. If uh, also if you're listening to this and you know what that movie is, please message the Politicor Instagram. But in all seriousness, um, dude, did you hear that new the new Human Garbage LP? Yes. In fact, uh, yeah. What What do you think, dude? I fucking loved it. Yeah, I'm way into it. I, that dude, I, uh, uh, it, it took me, it totally took me back to being a teenager, like in high school, waiting for one of the opening LA bands to play at, at Chain and feeling just fucking terrified about what was about to happen when the band started playing. I didn't think that I would ever get that feeling back, especially not just over some headphones. Um, and then the piece by piece cover uh, as the hidden track, just, just the perfect record. Um, those guys don't need any accolades from us, but man. No, I, I, I was into them with their last release, which had that weird painted cover of like what I guess was a red light district. Yeah. 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 But yeah, this new one really knocked me off my feet. Yeah, I've listened to it. Um, I've listened to it uh, every single day for this entire week, right when I start my shift at work. That would hype you up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 great. But uh, shit. Well, anyway, um, what an episode that was. Yeah, for real. I I don't know if you could tell that I had a bunch of coffee beforehand. Uh, perhaps I just had a lot of energy for the subject, but I didn't realize I was gonna come out the gates like that so no it's it's a it's okay so for, for those listening our guest on this episode was graham colbertson from the everyday anarchism podcast and um spoiler alert this this episode is leans more in the polita range versus the core range um if you're looking to hear me and evan talk a bunch of shit about a band you don't like this probably isn't the episode for you um but <laughs> If you were hooked from our very, very brief conversation uh, in the last episode about, you know, what bands can do to kind of skirt around some of the more oppressive and capitalist structures when you're on tour or when you're just trying to, like, have your own scene, this this might actually be the conversation for you. Uh, what do you think, Evan? Yeah, it was so cool. I think that, you know, we've been doing a lot of the the music talk lately, which which I really enjoy obviously but um it was nice to get back into the kind of um more philosophical but it wasn't even that philosophical it was very practical and um it, it actually was a really good extension from the last episode in terms of um 
what does what does this sort of anarchism look like in practice um in a in a in a punk world uh yeah so it was fantastic yeah i i i loved it um yeah go go check check out check out graham's show everyday anarchism everyone and uh, you know obviously listen to this episode as always you can message us if you have any questions or just want to come on the show thanks so much And I say, fuck it, let's just roll. And, you know, these are long episodes. Usually we're going to ramble. Why not? Okay. Yeah. Then I, honestly, I think I'm going to, I'm going to have it, uh, I'll have it come in right around there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know you're, if, as long as you're being recorded, it's, it's, it's fair game. Absolutely. You yeah, can even well, edit me to say things that I didn't say, but then I'll be mad. No, no. Well, you know what's funny is when uh, you were having some mic trouble a minute ago. And you just like emailed me congratulations. I was like, I was like, God fucking damn it, dude. They got me. I knew it, dude. Graham was a fucking Graham. Graham was a fucking informant this whole fucking time. I fucking knew it. Yeah. So I emailed you congratulations. And I thought I'd be able to explain the joke right away because I didn't know I was going to have mic troubles. Because when you sent me that email that was like, log on to my podcast, Gmail gives you these options to respond with. And usually it gives you three but the only one I could come up with, with was congratulations. And I just thought, yeah, well, that's just appropriate. So congratulations <laughs> to all of us. This yeah. is political. Yeah, yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Well, uh, Graham, do you want to take a quick second and uh, just to inter- introduce yourself for our listeners? I guarantee with the exception of like maybe one or two people, you will be, you'll be a new voice to a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Except maybe if they're seriously wrong fans. So uh, my name's Graham. Um, and I guess... I'm supposed to introduce that I'm an academic. I teach at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. But the reason you guys are having me on is because I'm the host of this podcast, Everyday Anarchism, which was actually my attempt to flee from academia. I had quit my job and I was a stay-at-home parent and it was during the pandemic. And I was really, really, really hating the bosses that I quit my job to get away from, justifiably hating them. Obviously, all bosses should be hated, but these bosses were particularly bad. And I've been reading a lot of David Graeber, and I just thought, what? why the fuck not? I'm going to start a podcast about David Graeber and it, you know, revolutionize the ideas of anarchism for a broader audience. And then the next thing I know, I'm on the political pod. <laughs> we, I mean, we are currently the, the crown jewel of, of uh, academic slash uh, hardcore and punk dork podcasts right now. So <laughs> you've like, honestly, you're, you're on the way up, my friend. I mean, I just, I'm, I am truly thrilled to be here. I have, you know, we'll have to get into, we'll have to talk hardcore at some point, but we can talk anarchism first. I have never been into hardcore, but in college, it seems like all of my friends and roommates were into hardcore and I have, I have thoughts, but why don't I say some things that your listeners won't hate before, before we get to that? <laughs> yeah. Well, we rag on hardcore last episode was entirely ragging on hardcore kids so you'll be in good company all right so now it's your turn so why am i here what can i do for you that that's a great that's a great question i think that's i think one of the one of the reasons why we both thought you would you would be a good guest is because uh something that happens i think quite a bit especially especially in in the punk subculture but just in like the broader culture at large, there's almost like this uh, unfair 
comparison where it's like you see like a, you put a character in a show or a movie with a red mohawk leather jacket anarchy a <laughs> on the back of the, the the jackie it's always like the worst fucking leather jacket too but anyway um and i you know i've, I've thought about that a lot it's like hey like you know like our subculture is always affiliated with this political ideology but when it comes down to brass tacks a lot of us sometimes are are confused right are we supposed to be putting on our ski masks and you know causing some sort of disruption in the streets day in and day out or on the other side of the coin kind of an approach that that uh you talk about a lot graham is your appeal to kind of the the more common sense in you right like or it's like well it's like well yeah we could bust out with the windows of of a big bank or we could just like give people some free food (laughs) and you know in a lot of ways both of which both of which are 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 valid forms of of uh of protest against an oppressive system that we're all subjected to. And so having you on, I think is, is kind of a goal to reach them. Uh, just, I mean, one, have a good discussion, but two, I think give some of our listeners uh, an actual in-depth uh, conversation and understanding about what this political ideology even is, because it's been so it's been bastardized by both popular culture and by subculture. All of us who claim to think that, you know, we're, somehow elevated but because we like punk music because like you're you're in a hardcore band that charges 35 dollars for t-shirts um <laughs> that like we're you know we're above this this criticism or we fully understand what different political ideologies mean how they function what they would maybe look like in practice yeah um there's a ton there i'll i'll, I'll take a first crack at it and then we can see what evan thinks i mean the first thing i think is i mean you're not wrong and by you i don't mean you but anyone who's out there thinking there's a connection between punk and anarchism obviously everyone knows anarchy in the uk but the idea that in some ways punk was the the like vehicle for the revival of anarchism that happened in the 70s and 80s i think that's right and then that died out and the connection between punk and anarchism or anarchy and we can define those as the same or different it doesn't matter whatever we can have that conversation later has, I think, mostly been kind of dormant. And the revival of the new anarchy, which was from the battle in Seattle in 99, and of the uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Black Lives Matter movement, I don't see that as having come from the punk spaces, where definitely some of the the window smashing in the the 70s and 80s and, and that sort of thing. I do view that as having been part of the punk scene, although I'm no expert on the punk scene. I guess the other thing I'll take a crack at real quick is this question of like whether you should be giving people food or smashing windows. First of all, I'd say, yeah, you're you're right. In both of these cases, you're talking about something that plausibly springs from the tradition of anarchy or anarchism. And I... I mean, God, I was I was thinking about this. I was like, they're going to ask me this question. They're definitely going to ask me this question. So <laughs> I was ready for it. I was ready for it. And that is to say, the question is, what what is your goal? Okay, everyone has the same goal, which is a world without all the oppressive structures that we currently have. Even the fucking tankies claim that's their goal. And definitely the liberals claim that's their goal. So the goal is not the issue here. Everyone wants a world of peace and harmony, or at least claims to want that. Even the fucking fascists claim that's what they want. So we can't have a conversation about what we want. Everyone wants peace and harmony in the same utopia in the end time. So how are you going to get there? 
And the one anarchist solution, this is, I guess, the traditional, the anarchist orthodoxy, if there can be such a thing, is you got to smash the state. Um, and which smashing the windows, whether that works or not, we can talk about that in a second. But there's the smash idea. And then the other idea, which has gotten tons of pushback. You might call it, if you want to be mean about it, like lifestyle anarchism, this like kind of cliche, be the change you want to see in the world, which is a quote that Gandhi, who was definitely an anarchist, said, and also Gandhi never said that. <laughs> that That is the side I'm on, which is to say, if you're out there smashing things, you're smashing things, you're destroying, you're not building. Furthermore, you're pissing people off. And the moral justification for smashing windows or smashing the state, I mean, A plus, 100%, great job. There's, you're not doing anything bad from a moral sense if you're out there smashing windows. But are you actually bringing that world, that utopian world of, of peace and harmony that you claim to be in favor of if you're smashing things. And I personally don't buy it. And I guess that puts me certainly in the minority of anarchists historically, whether I'm in a minority right now, who, who knows, we haven't done a poll. We don't have a lot of meetings, us anarchist mm -hmm. academics. <laughs> I would say um, just to contextualize um, I, I think to, to contextualize punk interpretations uh, of anarchism uh, historically and contemporaneously um, as well as what I would consider to be mainstream or uh, centrist or right uh, interpretations of anarchism. There's some overlap there because punks, you know, there are definitely punks who have signed on to what they perceive to be a lifestyle, um, but is in essence without more uh, philosophy behind it or ideology behind it, really just what somebody might call cosplay. And part of that lifestyle, part of that cosplay is anarchism as cosplay, where it is essentially what the centrists and right think that anarchism is, which is this nihilistic destructive um uh just misanthropic non-belief system uh which is just about molotov cocktails mohawks hoodies and i guess this boogeyman of antifa is um is kind of the new catechesis for what people would uh at some point have called anarchists and has been kind of did a find replace and made it uh, Antifa, um, which a lot of the ideological inconsistencies work there too, where here's a, who's the head of Antifa? Who's the head of anarchism? This new uh, political party that we're looking at. Um, <laughs> but punks can fall into that too, where they get these cool patches that are anti-fascist or anarchist without really looking into what exactly does that mean? We like the blood, the black and red combination. We like Molotov cocktails and Mohawks. Um, but what does that look like in practice other than smashing stuff? Um, and I think that's where you get, I don't know if you, if you spend enough time actually talking to people who've been involved with the creation of punk spaces or the curation of punk spaces, the kind of building networks of bands, 
then you start hearing language that really is very consistent with traditional anarchism, uh, with, you know, mutual aid, Kropotkin, uh, um, uh, food, not bombs. Then you start hearing a lot more mutual aid, collaboration, uh, lateralization, horizontal organization. Um, that's when you start um, seeing a lot of what I, I associate anarchism with and what things like uh, Graeber and everyday anarchism are starting to kind of allow more of the population to access because there has been sort of this academic uh, academization of anarchism and what Graeber and you uh, have been doing is making this more accessible to the average person, which I think is especially valuable right now because I think the last three or four years especially have made these ideas much more palatable, much more urgent for the average American or just global citizen. Uh, so now I think there's a certain timeliness about messaging around mutual aid, around uh, horizontal leadership, around skepticism about authority and power, um, wherein, um, you know, neoliberal ideologies around just kind of trust in your particular one of the two parties uh, <laughs> dominated uh, maybe before three or four years ago. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right in terms of the, the, the shift. I think the, you know, the revival of, of anarchism after... I mean, anarchism, I've already mentioned a few revivals, but definitely with the election of Trump, the position, and then you can also add Brexit and all of these other movements in which so-called democracies, you know, slipped into outright authoritarianism or at least flirted with authoritarianism in the United States and the UK. That convinced, I think, a lot of people who are in the sort of democratic socialist tradition, what used to would have been called the Fabian tradition, which is that we can gradually get to socialism and we can do it with the government. I think that convinced a lot of people that something was wrong. And then just obviously the, the pandemic just, I mean, that was the spur for me to go from a left-wing academic who developed a lot of ideas similar to anarchism, but would have never called myself an academic because of the knowledge that A, anarchism was unserious, and B, anarchy was bad and violent. The pandemic happened, and it was just like, oh, fuck. Like, if, if we're not going to help each other, if we're going to depend on institutions, we're not going to make it out of this. And then, you know, to go ahead and get controversial right away, watching the progressive intellectuals in my circle deify all of these government officials, the various FBI people who were going after Donald Trump, and then the, the CDC and the World Health Organization, who, you know, did lots of good stuff and saved a lot of lives and also made some mistakes and got some people killed. But you weren't allowed to talk about that because the Trumpists were like, we hate experts. And so the progressives, they've been saying this for a long time, but in the pandemic, it got so bad. They were like, we love experts. Experts are right about anything. As long as someone has a PhD, they should get lots of money and have power over everyone. And if you don't like that, you should be in jail. And this <laughs> embrace of the carceral state in the name of progress just revolted me.
and 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 drove me to anarchism. I think I think that the so many tensions and 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 dissonances have become really apparent over the past uh i guess since trump but but especially since the pandemic where exactly what you're describing these kind of uh self-contradictions um starting with the fact that you know uh, exactly that particular election season where all of these tacitly authoritarian leaders were kind of at least vying for and 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 reasonably expected to access power um were being uh, categorized as populists, which is a term <laughs> used in that context, essentially meaningless. Uh, but that is kind of the the marketing, the, the strange, like, new speak uh, marketing of authoritarianism as populism. But that exact kind of inversion, where one party is each party thinks that they're the people and the other party is the elite or that they're the silent majority and the other party is this oppressive uh, uh, minority. It, it, it's, it's this weird uh, pattern of thought that I'm where, where these um, kind of fallacies, uh, cognitive dissonances where uh, every time you think something about the part, the other party, I'm convinced that, there's this projection happening that you just need to recognize a flaw in your own reasoning as well. And this is really just me trying to be metacognitive about my own thinking. Um, but one of the things about the pandemic that I thought made this so timely made, you know, Graber had Graber uh, dropped done of everything uh, 15 years ago. I'm not sure that it would have become such a landmark moment in, in, uh, history or philosophy, um, uh, you know, I had one of my former colleagues and, and who's a history professor uh, was the first person to bring it to my attention. He's an archaeologist. And he said, this is changing my entire curriculum. Yeah. Um, however, I think if it had dropped 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been made so many waves. But because the pandemic made it made all of these issues with our current system unignorable um, made us recognize just how often we are relying on mutual aid already um, because particularly in America, healthcare is not something any of us can count on without forever indebting ourselves um, to, to insurers. Um, so, we've kind of set up these heartwarming stories around mutual aid and, and, and this kid saved up uh, <laughs> money from his lemonade stand all year to pay off the lunch debts of his classmates. And it's like, wow, isn't that so beautiful? It's really great to see like the triumph of the human spirit here and this, you know, selflessness of this child. And it's like, if you said this kid was participating in anarchism in the classroom <laughs> would be a totally different news headline, but that's exactly what it is. And that's why I think now people just like Graeber's um, are you an anarchist? It's like, you already are. If you're being sold this kind of bill of goods that 
These are the things that make humans and particularly Americans transcend the own, the violence of their own system. And that's what makes Americans so great is this individualism, but selflessness. You're already <laughs> into anarchism. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is perfect. So if you look at something like the, like the way that our, the backup for our health system is is GoFundMe. I do think it's right that GoFundMe is is a form of anarchism. And but when you put it that way, first, you know, yeah, you've got the thing of like, like that's not anarchism. That's helping people. But the second thing is like, well, wh why do you want some bullshit solution like anarchism? Why don't you want a real solution like a national health service? Which is not to say that. I'm against the National Health Service, whatever. I'm all for people being able to get the health care they need. And then you just have this conversation. I admit, I have this conversation like daily. I have it with <laughs> my my mentor. I have it with my wife. And they're just like, well, how would there be doctors if there weren't this system? I'm like, why would there not be doctors? I don't, I don't understand. If people could do whatever they want and they weren't like clapped in debt, for trying to make themselves doctors, wouldn't lots of people want to become doctors? And then wouldn't those unindebted doctors just help as many people as possible? And then they're just like, well, now you're just making shit up and living in a fantasy world. And I'm like, yeah. And I and can you help me make it, please? <laughs> yeah. Graham, the thing with 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 like the like the doctor conversation specifically is there seems to be like a concerted effort from, from even that community to basically like Again, going back to the, the origins of the meritocratic youth, right? Like the number one reason why most people drop out of, of college or the pre-med program is because of things like Algebra 2 and calculus, which leads to tutoring being a $3 like, billion dollar industry almost <laughs> annually. And so if you already come from a family where you can afford to get a tutor, you can pretty much shoehorn your way through all the prereqs to get into to, to med school. And then you can actually start your residency where, again... You know, you just kind of like tell people like, oh, man, it sounds like you need to eat right and exercise. And they're like, I can't. I live next to like the place where, you know, they dump all the toxic sludge and the doctor's like, damn, that sucks. I drive a Tesla, you know, yeah. and so like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, it's like it, there, there seems to almost be like this like absolute like math conspiracy to keep making sure nobody who can pass like, oh, you can't pass calculus yet. Yeah, no doctor or engineering for you, which means. No nice apartment or house for you, which means fuck you. And, and then you're and then you're gonna get sick, and then you're gonna need a doctor, which you can't afford. And why do these stupid anarchists want to destroy our system that works? Yeah, bro, they want to threaten our way of life, bro. We can't, <laughs> we can't let them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then, so again, and again, all then all you're left with is like your finger wagging, like lib coworker who's like believe science, and you're like, bro, dude, like science just fucking bought this guy a Tesla. I didn't do anything for me. What the fuck? <laughs> oh, oh god, it's too true. It's too real. It hurts. It hurts. Yeah, no. Um, but I guess I don't know. I, I guess uh, my uh my my bad stand-up bit there aside i think that like uh one 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 good thing to to kind of maybe maybe segue into because we talked about this on our last episode with our friend with our friend jake was like what are the little things that that people who who are just even claim to be left leftists vaguely can start doing daily to kind of uh, i'm going to use the words push back against all of the the pressures of living in a neoliberal hell world. Oh, Jesus. 
Damn. Um, okay, give me give give me a second to collect my thoughts. I mean, the the first thing I'll say I'm, I'm gonna try and cheat my way out of this is, um, insofar as I understand the the hardcore scene as it exists, I think that that's a decent place to start in terms of describing a um, what we could call a prefigurative politics if we were going to be pretentious. And, you know, I've listened to a few of your episodes and there's a chance that this DIY ethos converge into neoliberalism and maybe we can take that on later, maybe not, it depends on where we go. But if you're in a band, you know, and no one is in charge of that band and you're touring especially if you're i don't know does the do like does like house concert circuit still exist in hardcore is that still a thing oh yeah yeah uh, more than ever because all the small venues closed during the pandemic yeah so if you're touring on like the house venue circuit and you're in a van that you borrowed with from somebody and you're crashing on couches and you're sharing meals and strangers are buying you coffee because they came to the show and they stood two feet from you because there were only 12 people at the show that that is as good a definition of everyday anarchism you can even think of it if you want to get you know like book chinian about it you can think of the hardcore scene as a commune of communes all these little networks of of, of scenesters linked up in this diy mutual aid network of I don't know, destroying each other's eardrums. I hope you guys, I hope you guys wear the the, the right kind of ear protection. Oh yeah, I, yeah. oh yeah. I, the yeah. the only the only set where I don't wear earplugs is my own because if anybody's gonna wreck my own hearing, it's gonna be me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, okay. I like that. I like that. I also wow. Just, I just got like the image of like of like book chin like in like an Earth Crisis hoodie, like all <laughs> like all xed up, you know, like being like you know. But um, that is. Yeah, I think that like what's interesting too is because like what we've just described is like if you were to like maybe push a lot of people in bands like on like what they believe kind of like an ideal ecosystem is, they would certainly say something that looks like that. And then the first chance they got to go on, on a tour where every venue is a live nation venue, they wouldn't think and they, they had hotels instead of weird couches covered in ants right <laughs> yeah wouldn't where somehow nobody who's inviting you to stay at their place even has shower curtains <laughs> yeah i don't know listen i've used a few shower curtains this past year <laughs> but um yeah where they they wouldn't think twice about it and then of course like you know to be fair you're, you're kind of like wow damn i can't i don't know if i can i don't know if i can blame you for for wanting you know something like a shower curtain and and not the floor to sleep on you know that's pretty that's pretty crazy. Um, By the way, thanks to everybody who's let me or anybody else sleep on their couch and not like criticizing your abode, just recognizing patterns. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good caveat, Evan. <laughs> yeah, Please I mean, look, this this gets you into the into the quagmire of like, can you build the system, the new system, without destroying the old system? And I'm confident you can, but that doesn't mean that. <laughs> We will. And I think, you know, yeah, I heard you guys do your episode about selling out. And oh, my God, was everyone just obsessed with selling out in the in the 90s? I don't know if that's as big a thing anymore. But yeah, if you're if you're part of that scene, because it's not to Dylan. Dylan has zero opinions on selling. Yeah, out. I know. I'm, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> no, I told you I listened to the episode. Um, <laughs> if you 
if you're part of that scene, and I think you guys talked about this about the indie film scene as well. If the goal of your scene, okay, now I'm going to throw, I'm going to take a really negative stand. So I hated, I hated the Barbie movie. I absolutely hated everything about it. I regret seeing it. But also, I've been following Greta Gerwig's career for it's got to be two decades now, and she came from the most, you know, the the hardcore version of filmmaking the sleeping on your friends couches of filmmaking and then she got into that upper echelon of independent cinema whatever you want to call it and man you got to make some deals with the devils to make that kind of movies but also they were amazing transgressive movies her two the two mainstream movies that she directed and now she just is a total fucking corporate sellout that's right you heard me the director of the barbie (laughs) movie is a corporate sellout and it's clear that that was just what she wanted all along, or at least has wanted for some time. And it's hard for me to be to blame her personally for wanting lots of money and power and fame and attention. But God, does it call into question the idea that there can be a separate ecosystem if to succeed in this DIY ecosystem means to not just leave it, but repudiate it, to shit on it, to destroy it and then somehow be praised as some sort of icon of transgression well and i think that's that's part of the question i was going to get to and maybe i'm going to uh (laughs) is is i I guess i'll use the term recuperation um uh in in the last episode I, i i was using the term elite capture which is a a term I believe coined by Olufemi Taiwo, uh, but but I think it's just kind of a part, a particularization of recuperation, which is a term coined by Guy Debord in Society of the Spectacle, which is like any uh, instrument of of uh, transgression that has the potential potential to liberate um, uh, or to upset power structures will find the existing power structures will find a way to incorporate that uh, transgressive force into reproducing that system of power, but with, but, but by creating the illusion that it is now a liberatory instrument rather than a reproductive instrument. And so I, I see that in, in uh, certain I, Barbie movie. I haven't seen it, but Barbie movie might be an example of that. Where here is a a movie where it's billed as this, you know, feminist triumph, uh, um, but is this this particular kind of feminism that ignores um, the the class division associated with white feminism that that necessitates intersectional black feminism um is this uh and this is the the question that i then have is how does punk diy ethos become recuperated become turned into the same system that it's trying to um sidestep um and and that's kind of some of the questions we ended up asking at the end of the last one which is like if our diy uh ethos if our if our uh, if our efforts to support each other directly and move 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 money mutually and, and and laterally and horizontally has to be mediated by these enormous corporations then perhaps it already has been recuperated and we have this illusion that we're 
all just supporting each other outside of this system. Meanwhile, it's all happening over Facebook, Instagram, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal. Um, so, so I guess I'm not asking a question as I thought I would. <laughs> Maybe creating, problematizing some of this. I mean, this is this is where like some of my old contrarian impulses come up and i'm just like you know it's not that i don't like taiwo i like taiwo Debor i like as well and i like foucault and i like all those people except derrida because he's annoying um <laughs> but i get tired honestly sorry frederick jameson i get tired hearing so much about this system and how totalizing it is. A lot of times I think that this totalizing system of capitalism is more the product of left-wing theorizing than it is an actual lived reality for people. I know there's capitalist realism and all this shit. I, I don't buy it. I guess this makes me crazy, or I guess the Marxist thing is that I'm just blind to what's actually going on. But I think that actually the academics are really good at seeing things that are real and exist in the world that are not capitalism and just saying, ah, but actually it's all inside the system that we live in. I'm not convinced we all live inside this system. Is that is that too outlandish of a thing to say? I, I don't think so. If I'm if I'm reading you correctly, but like you're saying, like, uh, essentially that's are you saying that only a, like a select portion of us are actually subjected, like subjected to like some of some of like the, you know, the policies or institutions that everyone is, is, is railing against. Is that what you're getting at? Or did I, did I miss no, you there? No, let me try this. So let's go back to the Graeber article of like, when you, when, when you get on the bus, you know, um, this are you an anarchist answer might surprise you. One of the examples he gives is when you get on the bus, there's no hierarchy, there's no coercion, there's no money, just everyone gets on the bus politely. And I would say that's completely non-capitalist, and I'm with Graeber, that's totally anarchist. Then you can if you want to say, yeah, but that bus was made by capitalism. Sure, fair enough, but it was probably paid for by city funds, which is a form of socialism, and then we can talk about taxation, and then pretty soon we're just in a, a much of a muchness. So this overarching, all-powerful system called capitalism, I don't think it's real. I think the world is way more complicated than that, and the hierarchical, absolutely oppressive, violent structures are on top in a lot of places and are a major part of the mixture. But I think they know that they're running the world. They're not running the world. Uh, fuck that up. They know that they are not running the world as fully as your average uh, Jameson influenced leftist intellectual will tell you that they are running the world it, because if they were actually running the world that much, you wouldn't be able to sit down with your friends and just shoot the breeze. You can do that. Freedom always exists within every system and human potential always escapes and overcomes every system. It's always happening. It's happening in big ways, but it's especially happening in small ways. This argument can be used to explain why we don't need to overthrow these huge oppressive structures. That's not what I'm doing, but this is a way of saying you live outside of or in opposition to these huge oppressive structures in some enormous 
portion of your life, especially if your job is not, you know, the absolute worst, which I know for billions of people, the job is the absolute worst. Just because those things are pressing down on you all the time doesn't mean that's all there is. And it doesn't mean that you're, quote, inside them in the kind of totalizing way that I hear from, I don't know, Zizek, maybe. Sure, sure. Okay. No, sorry. That that made sense. Yeah, I totally missed you on that one. <laughs> yeah, that, that helps so much. And in fact, like I, yeah, that helps so much because perhaps this sort of recuperation that I'm describing is is consistent with this rhetoric around selling out, but not consistent with the way uh, people like Dylan and most of us, honestly, feel that punk is operating, which is with a certain uh, uh, recoil to like um, uh, joining into the mainstream and what, what many people would call selling out because this selling out is this kind of mechanism where the punk stops being punk and the liberatory stops being liberatory and starts being this sort of um, tokenization of the thing that was uh, liberatory and is now being used to extract financially from the people who need to be liberated. Um, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that helps a lot. I don't know, but does it seem right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sort of it sort of helped me to. I think that I was falling into that exact totalization that you know, reading too much Mark Fisher or something, um, where um, I think. Uh, Charles Mills is is the person who wrote the racial contract, and he talks about the epistemology of ignorance, which is essentially like the opportunity for for privileged, especially white people, to like ignore the existence of race, and by doing so, perpetuate um, white supremacist systems because you know that's what colorblindness does, um, and and um, so in in an effort to like not be a part of that sort of thinking where it's like, let's pretend it doesn't exist. We have to be constantly aware. I think the opposite end of that spectrum is this totalizing where there's no escape. We have to like move off the grid or smash everything before we can live in an anarchist life. And it's just like any other bifurcation or either or situation. It's not that simple. And you did a good job of, kind of helping me to recognize the vast spectrum between the two. Yeah. It's not that simple. And it's, and it's not that hard. I don't think to anarchize your, your life. I mean, I had a long conversation on, on seriously wrong. I mean, all the conversations on seriously wrong are, are long and those guys are definitely um, anarchish, but their, their metaphor for society, the world they, they like is the library. And I like the library. Um, and it, but in a library socialist, universe i would also want a counterpart power which i use the example of uh, of the farmer's market and farmer's markets as they exist i mean you use money and i swipe my visa right so i am i would not say contained within but i'm connected to the capitalist economy sure fair enough but what the farmer's market is is people who have if it's done right with their own hands grown or or created something and they have brought it to you and all i have to exchange with them is is money 
because I'm an intellectual and I don't create anything. I can't make a physical thing to my lament, but I exchange what I have for the thing that they have grown that is literally life-giving and they take that money and, you know, pay their rent or buy more seeds with it. And it, it just icks people that there's money involved. But to me, that's very anarchist. And a, a farmer's market economy in which no money is exchanged, but it's run on some sort of gift system. And there's all sorts of ways to imagine an anarchist economy. That's the kind of thing that I'm imagining. But when you're at the farmer's market, I see it most of the way there already. I'm very sensitive to the critique that as long as people are swiping visa cards, it's not close, or maybe it's not there at all. But I simply can't, I simply can't believe that. I know that the bankers who run the world, if they actually ran the world, would not allow farmers markets to exist. I know they wouldn't, but they do. And I love them. Or they would allow them to exist. They would just be Pepsi brand farmers market. <laughs> yeah, but you would only be able to buy Pepsi from them and farmers would have to buy their seeds from Monsanto. You know, I don't know. I think that's the recuperation where they buy the, the farmers market. <laughs> don't let you know that it's called owned by Pepsi and convince you that it's owned by your local neighborhood. And so you get all the super hippie anarchist folks uh, unassumingly in, participating in, in that. In what, scenario, in what scenario is Pepsi such an efficiently well-run company <laughs> that they've taken over my local farmer's market and my friends and neighbors who are the vendors at the farmer's market are now working for Pepsi and they've managed to hide this from me to keep me in their totalizing capitalist system. That is a better run corporation than I've ever heard <laughs> any of them being run. See, and I think that's the that's the kind of dangerous kind of thought thinking that I'm finding myself falling into and that probably most others who um, hesitate at all. I, I, I feel like I'm totally sold, but I've apparently have these sort of hesitations as well, which is this kind of all or nothing mentality around it. When in fact, as you say, as Graber says, like you participate in anarchist activity every day. It's just not, uh, illustrated in the way that Banksy would like you to visualize it. And if it works in your day-to-day -day life, why not make it work in more and more ways? Let's let's do that. Which is the question that you asked me. Um, how 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 can we do it? And I'm gonna. I just keep talking, but I guess you've asked me here to talk. You know, when <laughs> I when I started the podcast, the goal was to explain all of the different ways that your everyday life could be anarchist. That's probably why I froze when Dylan asked me that question. Cause that was like, I wrote like a year's worth, not a year's worth of episode scripts, but a year's worth of topics and outlines for that. And as soon as I started recording the episodes, it became immediately clear from the download numbers that what people wanted was to hear about Kropotkin and Graber, not to hear about farmers markets and, traffic circles my guess is that's because people are looking for these totalizing theories you know yeah that's what they want from me as an intellectual and yeah no that makes sense i'm an intellectual i'm not an activist in that sense yeah sorry i lost I... my train of thought so please someone else talk <laughs> no no i think that uh uh where where we were headed was 
was was some good good territory because like again like in all of the circles that I've run in in, in, in my life, whether it was academic or again just just talking to talking to people at a show or, or my coworkers at the co-op or whatever, um, there is this like there is that that totalizing sense, right? Like we have to like some like you know every, I you know I've got, I've got homies that are everything from like full blown like DSA style socialists to like no we got to go we just got to go back to the land like I don't I you know I, like you know I work with I work with somebody who doesn't have a phone rides rides their bike an hour both ways to get to work and like you know lives on like a like lives on a commune with like has like 18 other roommates they all share the same kitchen it's probably disgusting you know what i'm saying but like um and so it's when when i i think that that is kind of like the 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 crux here right that's what everybody's burdened with when they're trying to think about getting to kind of the next the next stage we're so clearly at the end of something at this current time in in, in america and frankly in uh, fr- frankly all over the world but at least in, in this country we're so clearly at the end of something everyone's got loads of anxiety about what's coming next and uh you know the thought of just uh the thought of of just being like you know a better uh more, more supportive to everybody at the farmer's market i feel like everyone's like what what did you just fucking say like as they're like loading up their guns you know like what grab a gun I'm like well no man i gotta dude i'm going to the farmer's market I, you know, like, I'm sorry, like, this is, I'm doing anarchism. I'm going to get veggies. And uh, that's, that's the, that's the funny, uh, kind of push pull here where it is non-threatening enough that like, I, maybe this is a way to put it. The, 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 the presentation of this as, uh, quotidian as, uh, non-threatening as harmless as as kind of warm and fuzzy is the thing that will allow what punks would call normies <laughs> to recognize that in fact they practice anarchism with great joie de vivre every weekend <laughs> um, and and it's also mundane enough that punks are going to turn their noses up at it because it isn't this totalizing we didn't just set fire to a bank. What are you even doing? Uh, where, where is your um, allegiance if if you're over there getting organic cucumbers instead of <laughs> sitting here in this, our little coffee shop and plotting something that we're never going to do? Um, and I feel like that's that's this academic um, siloing that's that's kind of put the brakes on any sort of progress from early workers movements when you'd get all of this infighting and and internecine fissuring and and kind of uh splintering of the of whether you're more with Proudhon or Bakunin or you know um and kind of instead of recognizing hey what does praxis look like in a way that is everyday um something that that we're probably already doing and it doesn't have to be everything all at once um baby steps are perfectly fine um yeah that's interesting yeah and i just want to say i do i i am intentionally you know a a a pleasant non-revolutionary anarchist Mm. but i mean i don't want to just devote the next hour to talking about farmers markets and farmers markets have (laughs) problems they they they're too bougie they're too white etc etc 
But if some substantial portion of the world's population switched to getting their food and, and crafts from farmers markets and then subsequently some other relatively large portion of the population that have always wanted to be farmers but are unable to so instead they're working in a call center because there's not enough people who want to buy locally grown cucumbers if if that shifted to some decent percentage of the world we would call it a revolution or the historians mm. would call it a revolution a hundred yeah. years later the way that would shape what we eat how we live, how we spend our days, it would be revolutionary, even though it's just, you know, buying your cucumbers from down the street. I have to say, I fucking hate cucumbers. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot eat a salad that like a cucumber has touched. Sorry. Yeah, the, the, no, it's yeah. I don't, I don't like them either. The texture, the texture makes me like, feel like I'm gonna like gag. Yeah, there's, a, there's something vomitous about a cucumber. What? What and this is like I've never run into this like this sample population of like sixty seven percent are fully grossed out by cucumbers. Um, I uh, in Tucson and where I'm living right now, there's um, there has been throughout my life a really uh, flourishing locavore community, um, which you wouldn't necessarily anticipate in a place like the Sonoran Desert where food is not you know it's hard one um but people are making flour out of mesquite pods and you know eating cactus fruit and um harvesting beans and stuff uh so yeah it's um and a lot of the people that i know that do that have never listened to a punk song in their life um probably don't identify as anarchists so some of the like best anarchists i know are just like pretty chill middle-aged or retired folks i know from like my my local buddhist center yeah there's a good chance that like the old lady you see gardening as you walk by her house is the best anarchist you know she doesn't yeah. know she's an anarchist but that's not a problem as far as i'm concerned yeah that's a great point yeah i'm gonna go let her know <laughs> <laughs> But again, like you, like it goes back to the like the local news story. It's not like it's not like you know, uh, delightful retiree spends time gardening. You know, it's like it's like fucking like FBI raids home of suspected yeah. like anarchist guerrilla gardener. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just local grandma boycotts uh, GMOs or boycotts you know um, mass produce and starts uh, doing grassroots organizing. Yeah, grassroots. And like when it's when it's phrased that way, obviously, you know, we're, we're all we're all laughing. We're having a good time. But, yeah, it makes me just it makes me feel like in a lot of ways, like my entire like political life or my entire time, like like all these years I've spent like developing, like, what do I actually believe? Like, what is am I am I fucking picking here? Like, it just feels like I'm addicted to extremes, yeah. you know, when like <laughs> when when though, like as I keep kind of like going through this, this and and talking with other people about you know what they think the best foot forward is time and again it's 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 all it's all the little things and i think i can't help but feel like a lot of these circles too that we've all run in in one form or another just yeah everyone's just addicted to trying to get like the craziest 
possible thing done. Um, and usually three of the five of you are informants anyway. So. <laughs> what they, what everybody wants, and I think, again, this is like what people wanted from my podcast, is they want the most complete thing yeah. they can imagine. They want to know what the world is going to be, and they want to know how you are going to get there. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's, that's totally that's totally fair. I, I, in a lot of ways, I think that's, that's why I even kind of started thumbing through your, your podcast, Graham. I was like, <laughs> all right, like, let's see, let's see what we got in here. You Where's know, the answers? It, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you just want me to tell you what anarchism is and then you'll know, and then you can be an anarchist or not an anarchist. Cause we n- have resolved what it is. That wouldn't Exa- that be easy. Dude. Exactly. I, yeah. I feel like I was, I'm just like, I'm just looking, I'm like, I'm looking for someone else to give me orders. I'm like, this is totally anarchism. <laughs> yeah. I just like listen to this guy right here. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that just for for just knowing punk audiences, I fear that um, the accessibility of anarchism and the fact that it's the same thing that the little old lady down the street is doing kind of de-romanticizes it. Um, and uh, especially for people who've kind of become YouTube anarchists uh, by going down like Zizek rabbit holes, um, it sort of de-intellectualizes it. And if that's the tension, that's that's like the feedback you get on your podcast because it's like too applicable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then, <laughs> I think then that's, uh, that's perhaps criticism that should, that should be well taken rather than this like, uh, you know, academic means two things. It means like it is in the world of, of, of you know, uh, research and writing but it also means like not real world application um and so if it's as simple as um you know we we're helping each other out by giving each other a cup of sugar and that's anarchism because we're not going to walmart to get it um some people will re- be really disappointed that um you know that's not something that they can kind of put a patch on their jacket about yeah no it, it does disappoint people but the, I mean, the way you make it totalizing, and this is the the conversation that I have to have all the time with people, is can you imagine a world in which it's all sharing sugar and there isn't a Walmart, and therefore the sugar has to be somehow, God, I was going to say produced and distributed, which I guess are the right terms, but that's not even the right thing. The sugar has to be grown and harvested and refined and and shared without this other structure that we can call capitalism or managerial feudalism or whatever and that's what's become the mission of the podcast for me because it's so easy for me to imagine that world and in fact that's the goal of the dawn of everything right is to show you that in fact in pretty much every civilization up until 5,000 years ago and in lots of civilizations until relatively recently people lived in ways that didn't have the sort of trade and bureaucratic violent hierarchies that our entire civilization says is the only way to live the good life so whether it's in the past or the future and I find the works of Kim Stanley Robinson who you know, claims to not be an anarchist, but I don't buy that. But whatever, I'll have to keep asking him about this. Um, <laughs> I find this very useful, both the past and the future, to imagine the way the world could be. And somehow that's so much more satisfying to people 
tell me a story of 5,000 years ago when everyone is a, an anarchist or tell me a story of 3,000 years from now when everyone is an anarchist. But no one wants to hear, it, it seems, or at least far fewer people want to hear about the fact that like the only way I was able to get through the year in which I was a stay-at-home parent was because of the help of the grandma down the street, which by the way, the grandma down the street is a world-class cellist and uh, her name is Debbie. And I was trying to explain to her what hardcore is. And <laughs> I started with punk and she didn't really know what that was. So it didn't go very well, but she said, well, does it, does it have a nice melody? And I was like, nah, I wouldn't say that. No. And she was like, but a good rhythm. And I was like, mm, what do you mean by <laughs> rhythm? Uh, I was like, there's, there's drums. And then that was the end of our conversation. Me trying to explain <laughs> to the concert cellist what hardcore was. Hell yeah. But Debbie, Debbie's the best anarchist I know. She definitely doesn't consider herself an anarchist. And she's definitely a conventional, you know, Clinton, Biden, Obama voter in her politics. Right. Sure, Which, of sure. course, you know. Is good is better than it's better than the alternative if we have these two choices. But Debbie has made my life. Uh, frankly, the podcast Everyday Anarchism exists only because of how much Debbie helped me in that first year in terms of with childcare. And there's no coercion. There's no money exchange. There's no nothing. And just imagine if those relationships. And I know you have them. Everyone who's listening has these relationships, obviously, hopefully with certain people very close to you, but also with people who you didn't grow up with or you didn't realize were going to be close to you. And just imagine if things like workplaces worked that same way. I actually don't think that's hard to imagine, despite the fact that everyone claims it's impossible to imagine. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I've just read too much Graber. I think, first of all, I hope, sorry, Dylan, this is a joke, essentially, so it'll be short. <laughs> Hell yeah, um, hit, hit, hit us with it. <laughs> now that we've kind of created a preamble for it, I'm looking forward to Debbie's, um, I, I, I hope that you'll kind of keep working on Debbie and we'll kind of help you with the curriculum, because I'm looking forward to a uh, album of cello covers of Crass, Hops Rotten, and Flux of Pink Indians. Um, oh my God, Debbie. De I mean, Debbie would crush that if we could get her to understand why we wanted her to do it. <laughs> Damn, yeah. That honestly, that that would be sick. Well, we'll let's uh, let, let's table this for yeah. for another time, gentlemen. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I, Graham, when you're talking about you know your relationship with Debbie, I I immediately thought of of of, of a couple that I have in my life. Um, but when one thing that I think about is it seems like because we keep going back to this really kind of like like kind of silly and cute example of like an older person who's realistically you know retired from a different generation from a completely different economic landscape, you know, where like a house was like twenty dollars or whatever. <laughs> um, and so where where my where my brain kind of goes with that is like, OK, OK, so, you know, these these relationships that we can form with each other that make the world a better place that are all of us actually engaging in in anarchism are kind of predicated on people like material conditions and people not having that anxious burden of like, I can't be a farmer. I have to work at the call center or otherwise <laughs> 
like the metaphorical gun is pointed yeah. right at me, if, right? If I work at the call center, I won't starve. Whereas if I grow yeah. food, I might starve. So I better yeah. work at the call center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like that, for so for like, like uh, well, I think of everyone who's still in an, in the unfortunate burdensome stage of their life where they're like just getting up and going to work every day. Yeah. Um, and so like that, that how, I guess in, in a way, like, like what is like, what is like, cause like then, then it starts to sound like, like it sounds like you're listening to like Gary Vaynerchuk or like some hustle grinds that shit to yeah. be like, Hey, you only work nine to five but what are you doing from five to nine, bro? It's like, oh, you're right, man. I got to get out there and gorilla garden and fucking, you know. So I, I the, the the parallels between like hustle culture and then also trying to like make whatever, whatever the, whatever the thing about you that is actually yourself when you're not at work, you know, uh, happen and be a communal experience or something you can actually share in a more meaningful way than just answering the phone, for example, that is the, the part that I, that I struggle with. Um, and I think frankly, all, all, I'm sure all of our listeners are, are feeling the same way, right? It's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with my work for the day. Now it's time to do like the real work and holy shit, I've been on my feet all day long. Like I'm just gonna, you know, rewatch Ace Ventura or whatever. So. Yeah. Well, this is the place where it becomes obvious in case it wasn't obvious so far in the like hour that we've been talking where it just sounds like I just believe in flowers and farmers markets and cellos. Obviously, the giant, terrible economic system that we live under has to be reshaped and eventually destroyed for this to be possible. I guess the question is, do you have to do that? with a, a a revolution that is some sort of overthrowing and oh god now i'm going to give you revolutionary theory and then maybe i'll try and actually answer your question so one of my one of my issues with the revolution is the first thing that happens whenever there's a revolution is they try and figure out what they're going to do and who's going to be in charge of it um i mentioned kim stanley robinson in his revolutionary trilogy the the mars trilogy um, after the big revolution in the third book, they have a giant meeting to figure out, you know, what they're going to do. And they come up with a kind of like commune of commune constitutions. And the old anarchist says, why, what do you need a constitution? Like the government fell and then people were just doing stuff. Just say, hey, there's no government. Just do whatever you want. Um, it seems to me that that would that that would work. But it also seems to me that every revolution that's ever happened has required some sort of like restored center of power that's how you know it's a revolution and right. the story i always tell about this is uh you know there was this there's this fantastic anarchist novelist named victor serge uh i call him the anarchist bolshevik because when the bolsheviks took power he joined them and all the anarchists were like what are you doing and he was like well look i don't like the bolsheviks but now that the government's been destroyed someone's got to be running this revolution and if you think someone's got to be running this revolution, you're always going to end up with some regime that's not a good replacement for the last revolution. So he thought he was an anarchist and he turned out to be a Bolshevik. Then, of course, they tried to kill him for being an anarchist. That's that's where you get if you're trying to look for a new a new order. Finally, it's obvious 
that there has to be some way. I particularly like universal basic income, which would be its own podcast or million podcast episodes. People talk about jobs guarantees, which scares me because I hate jobs. But there has to be <laughs> some way for people to do the valuable work that is good for them and good for everyone else between nine to five. There has to be some way to do that. I've got my theories of what they are, but I want to stipulate for anyone thinking like, you know, this asshole just wants me to go to the farmer's market while staying at my dead end job. I mean, yeah, (laughs) maybe for now, I'm sorry. That's horrible. Dead end jobs are horrible. I get it. But if we don't transform the system such that dead end jobs go away and you can do the real work of being an anarchist, which is to say being a person, friend, neighbor, human during those hours, then we then we have failed and we have not done anything revolutionarily worth uh, naming. And that's obviously why those fucking sellouts sell out, because they're thinking, oh, my God. I don't want to work for this corporation, but I can play the music that I've always wanted to play and I can do it without selling my soul from nine to five. And I'm totally sympathetic to that. And this is this is such a great point because uh, of many that you've made of um, this kind of the current system relying on the precarity of everyone's uh, livelihood. Uh, and kind of that has to be the last thing to go because um, if stepping away from my nine to five means I only have one re- month of rent uh, yeah. guaranteed to me, um, then I, I'm really reliant on that job or finding another similar job, most likely what David Graeber would call a bullshit job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now, especially, it's an interesting time to watch this uh current kind of uh technological revolution that's happening where automation is happening all around us artificial intelligence is happening all around us um now would be the optimal time to start having more serious conversations about universal basic income and we saw during during quarantine that you know during times of duress, it's something that they're willing to consider. And it worked. Uh, and it worked. It worked and it perfectly. Worked. And then uh, the and then this tragedy happened, which is the corporation started sucking up so much of the money that uh, inflation happened, and somehow the people were blamed for the corporation sucking up all that money. How? Mm, sorry. Go go ahead. Meanwhile, still being blamed, where the corporations are having this kind of talking out of both sides of their mouths, whether where they're like. We don't have enough money for raises, but stakeholders, we're making record profits. Um, anyway, this isn't something everybody doesn't already know. But what it's interesting to watch is the jobs that were considered essential jobs have not changed in terms of how much they're being paid. They're still arguing for what should have been uh, minimum wage years ago. Um, but jobs that are being automated, jobs that are being replaced by artificial intelligence aren't the bullshit jobs. They're the artistic jobs. Jobs that are being replaced by AI are visual artists, writers, um, uh, English major students uh, in my undergraduate class, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, but not they're not you know the people who are currently living on hourly minimum wage jobs 
uh, are being replaced, but also not being replaced. You know, you've got all of these um, self-checkouts, but now they're just being monitored by the people who are being paid minimum wage rather than being those people being subsidized or the money that the company is being saving by hiring robots instead of people is not going into universal basic income or um, finding other opportunities for those workers. Um, so they have even more precarity there where they have to kind of clutch to, to the job that they have while watching it being given to a robot. Um, uh, where was I going with that? Oh, just that now seems like a better time than any to talk about universal basic income, but it's also a time where uh, people who have the power to make something like that happen are the least willing to talk about it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is a confusing time because they did do a universal basic income more or less in the in the United States um, during the pandemic, and it did work. And we do have this problem. The one thing I'm going to object to is the idea that this is something new. You know, I'm I'm working on something on the Luddites with Ruth Kenna, who, if you've listened to my podcast, you've heard her a few times. I found out recently. I mean, this is on Wikipedia, so it's not hidden. But that Thomas Paine suggested something resembling a universal basic income in like the late 18th century at, at least since the like first or early industrial revolution in the 18th century but probably since the invention of humanity we have not needed everyone to work terribly hard in order to eat that's just never something that's happened in all of human history, even though we are constantly told we have always needed that. And now it's like, oh, we're in this weird new automated world in which not everyone is going to need a job. And what are we going to do about it? But people have been deliberately unemployed for over 200 years. And frankly, since the fucking plow was invented or I mean, I, I could go on and on. The point is, I don't. I do. I guess I'm 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 disagreeing with you, or at least offering a historical correction. Now is not the time to say, "Huh, we actually don't need everyone to have productive work." Now I want to say, most people, or some huge percentage of people, have not been doing productive work for hundreds of years, if not all of humanity. And we need to recognize that and decide whether we want to make people work for no reason or whether we want to live in a, in, in a different world. I guess that sounds silly and stupid and utopian, but I do think from a like empirical point of view, it's true that we have not needed most of humanity to be employed at least since the late 18th century, but probably since no. the beginning of humanity. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that it's, it's it has it has made sense and instead of you know, like being i mean conceive when when the cotton gin was invented there was a possibility that it would free up the labor of a lot of enslaved yeah. people and instead it increased their labor because people couldn't like jive with any sort of liberation of those those folks um and now with automated jobs instead of saying okay the money that we're saving on that can be circulated into a more robust welfare system <laughs> more social safety nets 
universal basic income. Instead, it's gone into, okay, well, now we need to create new jobs for these people, yeah. which creates a lot of what Graeber describes as bullshit jobs, which just ends up being the increasing bureaucratization of every sector. Where what is it that you do? I'm, <laughs> who, who knows? Like, I, I, you know, I spend enough time on LinkedIn when I'm looking for work and I'm like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. Dude, yeah, Evan, you're, dude, you're the assistant associate sales director, okay? <laughs> Come on, man. Everybody know. I, I think that, uh, I think this actually is a good, I'm not, I guess, se segue or partial transition because the, the thing that is, the thing that is, that is fucking breaking everybody intentionally so in a lot of ways is the fact that we live under an economy that only relies on growth for the sake of growth, you know, and if you go, if you engage with, you know, the, the, the library socialism idea, right, where we've produced more than enough, and yeah. there's more than enough stuff that needs to be routinely fixed or maintained, right? I, I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of roads and automobiles right off the bat. We have plenty, we have plenty of cars, we have plenty <laughs> of everything to go around. Um, this is where you would want to, I guess, not want to, but to, to me, like the, the, that, that's where the, the whole notion of the degrowth economy comes back in we don't need anything that relies on gdp that keeps triggering these artificial recessions that are nothing more than uh the disciplining of labor the intentional bludgeoning of anybody who thinks for a second they're gonna go they're gonna grow veggies no get your fucking ass back in that call center you know we're, we're raising we're, we're raising the price of everything um so that that is to, to, to me i feel like where this is slowly yeah. going at least from from the sidelines from hearing you two talk yeah no that's great i mean so first when we're talking about degrowth the first thing i need to say and it's not like people haven't said this before but i just have to say it. i i don't like the word degrowth the phrase degrowth because you know for, for two reasons one the obvious reason i think chomsky has said this it scares people it's like wait you mean we're gonna have less in the future yeah. and yeah. i would say uh, we're, if we do degrowth right the way i would think of it we're going to have more of everything you would want and less of everything you don't want so you know we, we i would call it growth of uh, of a certain kind but the other thing is yeah that's the thing i want to say is like i'm i'm for a different form of growth so one of the points that graber would always make about the anti-globalization movement that he was a part of that fought the battle of seattle is that it was a totally international global movement they were for globalization he ended up eventually calling it um you know alter globalization but he said one of his preferred words for it was the globalization movement so yeah. when, we're, <laughs> when, we're, when we're talking about degrowth I think what we're saying is the GDP is going to go down, but if we're against the use of the GDP, which everyone in degrowth is, as far as I know, then we shouldn't be talking about the GDP going down because we don't fucking care. That's mm -hmm. another version of being unable to imagine outside of the world of capitalism, I think. And I guess if you want something that like AOC could deal with, you could call it green growth, um, something like that. Right, right. That's that. Yeah, sorry. That, go ahead. No, I was gonna say that's that's fair because like I, I every like when I if I'm if I'm talking to somebody who I know is either gonna disagree with me or not understand, and you say the word degrowth, you do kind of take you take like five steps back. Like yeah. You just added like thirty minutes to the conversation usually. Yeah, you do have the problem though of 
jargon that like at least degrowth with people who know what it means, they know what it means. Right. Um, and so everyone knew that the anti-globalization movement was the people who hated the World Trade Organization. And they also knew that lots of them were from Argentina. So they didn't have a problem understanding that it was a global movement. Nevertheless, I'm not going to fly under the degrowth flag in, in part because of that you know, negative sense of D, but mostly because I don't care what happens to the GDP. The GDP is a terrible model for what happens. That's my current project. That's why I'm working on a year-long series on the David Graeber debt book, because my theory is, well, my theory, Graeber's theory, which I completely agree with, is that the world of economics has colonized our imagination. And so we have a term like degrowth, which is precisely what you would put it if you worked at Goldman Sachs. What do these people want? They want GDP to go down. They're anti-growth. I don't want to describe it in the way that the people who work at Goldman Sachs would describe it, even though it's a great description from their point of view. I guess that's my my angry opening statement and then you can and then you can come at me, bro. No, I I uh I don't I I don't have a, a, a anything to to come at you with because again, like if if I was backed into a corner, I would tell you that just economics is is a pseudoscience designed to just reinforce all the structures we're trying to get away from and we need to ignore it. So, um I don't really I had never even really considered that someone at at Goldman Sachs would refer to like <laughs> we would refer to like my my utopian vision of like everybody being able to like just get a used car at the used car library as being like you know what I mean it's like it's like on their board like I right, did today degrowth so no that's actually they would totally call it degrowth they would yeah, hate it no, no. but they would agree that it was degrowth yeah yeah I mean again I think that's you're just you're kind of you're showing me like right now live on my own fucking show like <laughs> that I can't get out of some of these. Uh, I can't, I can't stop using the language of, of this model that is, that is, that I believe is fake. And yet I, I walk right into it. Well, I, I, I know you hate Derrida, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll invoke hauntology for this just because I, I, I've, I've kind of recognized a pattern where um, these kind of, imagined pasts and imagined futures are kind of interacting with one another and, and uh, creating people's current politics. Um, and degrowth, of course, is like, because it's rhetoricized as this kind of backward movement rather than a forward movement, I, I think that I'm, I'm with both of you on this. Um, but, but what's interesting to me is like degrowth to me sounds like what your most capitalist dad or uncle or grandpa once when he says that nothing's meant to last anymore <laughs> um because because capitalist uh businesses rely on planned obsolescence and no cap no business is going to continue to create its own profit margins and increase profit margins if things last for a lifetime like he will remind you they used to do um, <laughs> And so he wanted to go back to this spectral uncle of mine, um, wants to go back to this imagined past where things actually did work pre-Reagan, um, meanwhile espousing the politics of uh, businesses, uh, somehow this weird dissonance of being pro-worker because his friends are all workers, 
but pro business because he thinks that Elon Musk is who he's going to be someday. Um, but also this weird rhetoric in especially far right circles around like trad, um, <laughs> like being traditional or paleolithic, which especially knowing what we know about Graeber's and, and other um, authors who've done kind of archaeological, anthropological studies around anarchism, um, these kind of created or fictionalized pasts where uh, there is a major hierarchy of men and women. Now we know, of course, women were hunters too. Um, and, <laughs> Which frankly, uh, that, I, like I, every five years I see a news story where someone's like, it turns out women were hunters also. And I'm like, I, I didn't do any studies, but I knew that already. <laughs> and men probably wouldn't be hanging around too much if all they did was hunt and didn't do any of the gathering you know um but yeah this weird this weird tension is like i too think we should go back to paleolithic times but to me that doesn't mean only eating raw liver that i get from fries it means going back to this grassroots we're all gardening and organizing that way um i too think going back to more of a uh, ancient set of gender roles, but that doesn't mean trad <laughs> wives who are milk and wheat fed or corn fed, but rather this more horizontal organization. But that's not the fiction that we've been fed. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how useful this is, but I must admit, I do think this all the time. Of like, you know, people say like, I, I'm, you know, they'll describe someone as a populist, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a populist, but I mean the exact opposite thing or i want to go back to the stone age and i'm like yep exactly the example i tell people i don't know if i've said this on the air before is you know talking to my dad about trans issues or something my dad said something like yeah i don't believe in gender ideology and i just with a straight face i don't know how i did this i looked at him and said with complete honesty yeah i don't believe in gender ideology either but uh what we meant by gender ideology we're diametrically opposed things. Exactly. It's, exactly. Like, it's funny that gender critical. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm so I'm so gender critical, but oh my god, I'm not gender critical. That all yeah. the gender critical people are nightmares. They're monsters. That's it's such a weird thing. Like if you'd ask me who who is the chief like gender critic, uh, ten Judith years ago, Butler, right? Butler. Yeah, right? yeah. And I'm gender critical because I agree with Judith Butler, who the gender yeah, critical people I'm hate. Judith Butler. Critical, I'm J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, maybe you know, we've been going long enough that maybe we're just descending into inanity because now we're just right back to how global the globalization movement was opposed by the globalization movement. Um, <laughs> and I do want to come back to to Dylan's question of. I mean, honestly, I would say. Uh, Dylan, to a certain extent, I feel like I've answered the question of my vision of of degrowth. I mean, it is to a certain extent about back to nature. I mean, I really do believe. So here's here's a story I tell. I tell people that everyone wants to be a farmer. I tell my neighbors this, and they're like, oh, no one wants to be a farmer, Graham. That's fucking ridiculous. Everyone wants their office jobs. And then I come out on Saturday. And everyone is in their yards digging up plants and planting other plants and watering them. And they can't even eat the shit that they are growing, but they are nevertheless gardening with all of their spare time. And the fact that they think they don't want to garden, they want an office job. But I don't see them going into their office and working their office job on Saturday. I see them 
growing plants. So this is my first just outlandish theory that most people want to nurture, grow, and create if given the opportunity to. And then now I'm sort of repeating myself. Maybe this is what happens when you talk this long. I completely agree with Graber. The UBI, a universal basic income, where everyone has enough that they can you know, afford some sort of shelter and some sort of basic food would immediately unleash just unheard of productivity, not in the GDP sense of productivity, but in the sense of growing, caring, and yes, thinking of the cars, repairing and restoring. If people had money so that they didn't have to be so uncertain, they would actually build the life that would make them not need money. And then this is another contradiction that I think is true, although I get told I'm wrong all the time in conversations with people. That means if you give people money, they won't need money. But if you say that you're not going to give people money, they do need money. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And I, 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 I buy that. The other thing that Graber says is there'll be a lot of really shitty punk bands if there's universal basic income, and that's okay. I mean, like, I, there's already too many shitty ones now. But you there know? can just be more. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, what, yeah, is, no, what no. does it matter? And those guys, after they're done, or gals, I suppose, but I assume hardcore is pretty... I mean, back, back in my day, it was pretty uh, dude-dominated. Hopefully that's changed. They're probably going to grow some tomatoes in between gigs, and then everyone's going to be happier. No, you know what? You're... You're right. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That is, that is essentially, in in no uncertain terms, the the phrasing I think of as well when I'm thinking of like, what's like, what are we doing here? Like, I say I hate my job every day, or I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. Like, what, what do you want out of it? And the answer is just like, I don't want to fucking go to work. I just like want to not have anxiety about basic needs, and then like we can really get, we can really get to it. We can, we can grow shit. We can fix people's cars. And we can make, you know, we can make the worst, the worst bands anyone's ever heard of. And <laughs> I, yeah, I, so, I, again, again, yeah, like I, I think that uh, to a lot of people that just like sounds like that just sounds like I don't even know, like um, like you went to like liberal arts college or something. But to me, that's just <laughs> that just sounds like what that's always to me sounded like what we were all supposed to be doing. And frankly, what most of us all want anyway. So if you look at the people who don't have to work, I mean, if you, if you look at the billionaires, you'll actually find them working constantly. The billionaires work constantly. And then if you look at like the children of people who don't have to work, one of two things happens to them. They either just become a complete nightmare fuck up or they find something that they can work really hard at, either because it brings them power or sometimes they work for a charity. I mean, if people don't have to work, it turns out they work. And as long as they're not doing their best to just keep their billion dollars, they'll often work at things that truly help make the world a better place. So the people who say that it wouldn't work to give everyone a universal basic income, they want us to think that the children of billionaires are actually more altruistic than the rest of us, that we have to be forced to work. Otherwise, we will do useless things. Whereas rich kids, when they're not forced to work, actually try and start charities. That's just not true. The rich kids undoubtedly are worse people than us. And still, most of them do their best to do something productive and 
something meaningful with their day. All I ask is for the same chance for everyone is for those goddamn spoiled rich kids. And I think you would get your degrowth utopia. I'm sorry, your green growth utopia. What are we calling this now? I, I, I'm not really sure what to call it. I'm just, again, I, I just call it, I'm just going to keep calling it degrowth just for the sake of some consistency. <laughs> Because I love the, rules. The, the everyday anarchist utopia brought to you by Graham Culbertson, and I'll be the emperor. Nah, that works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, that's how that's how quick we were like all down to succumb to power. Like, hey, yeah, I don't it's know. just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put Graham in charge. I like yeah, this. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Hey, hey, this this guy said I could rock out and grow plants. <laughs> like, I think uh, he's in charge now. I'm gonna vote for him. Vote for the anarchist. He'll be the best president. I mean, yeah. it's just it 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 sucks us in constantly. But I also think we can just, if we reorient ourselves, we can step out of it. And I think we kind of do that dance every day. I, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I, uh, I think that that's, I think that's almost a, a perfect note to end yeah. the, the, the discussion on. We do, I, I know Evan told you, we do a, a brief segment at the end of every show where, uh, folks can talk about a band they think is underrated for a couple minutes. Um, Evan, uh, I know that I don't want to spoil it, but I know that you and you and Graham had both talked about Joe Strummer and the and the Mescaleros. I believe was the one. Yeah, we did. We did talk about Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. I mean, I want to start. I mean, this is probably the wrong answer, but I have a feeling. You know, you can go on you can go on Spotify, and that's where unfortunately most people listen to their music these days, and you can see um you know how often songs are played and if you go back and look at the clash albums besides london calling people are not listening to sandinista people are not listening to hang em high like no the the clash actually weirdly is is the before we even get to the mescaleros and oh my god so much of the stuff that joe strummer did in the mescaleros and in that era is amazing you might see still you know the clash patches but like people are not listening to those albums i and i assume that applies to the hardcore kids the punk kids ev everything they're just that 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 stuff obviously it's more popular than you know a band that only plays uh, I, don't, I don't know any bands that only plays on the house tour i'm sorry i'm 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 too old but if you want to hear something that is not the clash that you think you know, go back and listen to, listen to Sandinista. It'll take you two hours because it's a two-hour-long album, and you can see from the from the listening numbers that people just give up and walk away. That's okay. I've I've tried I've tried so many times. It is <laughs> it is it is an unlistenable record that it's I can such only... a mess. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's a mess, and the uh, your your intuition is actually correct the clash have been almost memed out of <laughs> punk culture they are eternally affiliated with like skinny jeans converse yeah. clash t-shirt like guy like you know what i mean like somebody who like just like one of the guys in the strokes who's not julian yeah. basically <laughs> is like what and like you know that i figured it, i mean yeah. I, that's what i figured i figured it's, the clash is just because i mean because you know because one thing is i do talk to young people and sure, sure. they 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 don't know who Joe Strummer is. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I, it's weird too because like my 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 dad, the Clash was like his like his favorite band. So like that was like that was my my gateway at a young age. He was like, here, listen to this, and I was like, oh man, an older person said this was good, it must be good. <laughs> um, I uh, I still do 
I still do uh, listen to Give Them Enough Rope quite a bit. I think that is actually a great record. Yeah. And uh, even though they influenced, you know, U2 and all kinds of other really bad bands, <laughs> I, I have a soft spot for them. Yeah, Evan, you want to talk about the Mescaleras a little bit? You could do it better than me. Uh, perhaps. Yeah, I, um, I think that, you know, my dad, like Dylan, my dad um, turned me on to The Clash, Joe Strummer. And, and and as a kid, you know, that was kind of the soundtrack to my living room life. Um, but I think, I don't know if I got turned on to the Mescaleros at just the time where I was developing an ear that was ready to access what it meant to for music to be a little bit more complex or diverse. This is when he started incorporating a lot more world beat sort of stuff mm, into his yeah. music, a lot more Afro beat stuff. Um, and that just like cracked, I think, music open for me a little bit. Um, both my parents worked in departments that were pretty uh, international. So I'd already been exposed to a lot of international music, but having that kind of fusion uh, between the kind of punk stuff I was listening to at home that my parents were listening to and this world music that we were encountering at you know university functions with uh international scholars and stuff that was um really kind of showed me the limitlessness uh and the kind of uh dialogue between between different musical styles um i actually uh yeah that's that's what i would say about the mescalero yeah that sounds great i think the connection between i mean punk i mean the clash and strummer especially and reggae just cannot yeah. be overstated. And I assume that has also been been lost in the punk imagination. It it, it has uh, only and like in a lot. Of, I go back and forth on this because I feel like I'm on both teams because on, <laughs> on the one on the one on the one hand, you're like, what the fuck did the clash ever do? The clash are the reason why we got fucking sublime, you know, <laughs> and then like uh, but then like on the other side of the coin, I think that I think that it is it is uh is unfair to to just kind of knee jerk that, and I think that in a lot of ways, politically, as much of it was as much of some of the clashes stuff was was pretty virtue signally, almost proto rage against the machine. Like I can't believe I can't believe Apple thinks they can buy us. All right, we're gonna play this Apple festival and then get made fun of by you know Van Halen. I do think that that they're still an excellent gateway into into how punk and politics. Can come together and then of course you can find the real critiques of them from from actual anarchists like crass and of course rudimentary peni as well later on down the, the line so yeah uh, so i just want to jump in there and say about rage against the machine so a guy i had on my podcast named gabriel coon you should totally have him on this podcast by the way he would be amazing so he's uh anarchist former uh soccer prospect academic punk straight edge everything he's he's absolutely brilliant and you can add some allure to your show because he tried to come as a speaker to the u.s a few years ago and he got banned because he's an anarchist yeah. so he's banned from our country love it yeah he's he's fantastic but Let's he talks go. about yeah I'll, I'll give you his contact information he people who get turned about, away at customs are instant guests yes, yes exactly unfortunately they let me fly over the world i haven't pissed anyone off yet um <laughs> so he he tells a story of trying to 
raise people's uh, awareness about political issues and finding out that they already know about them from Rage Against the Machine. And then he just thinks like, oh my God, I totally dismissed these band as just, you know, shitty ass posers. And I'm over here, you know, the true straight edge punk, but these kids already have been radicalized by Rage Against the Machine. So maybe there's more there than I, than I realized. I fucking hate Rage Against the Machine. So I don't, I don't know how that works. And in terms of Strummer and U2, I just view that whole, there's a lineage from, Probably, I would say, the Velvet Underground. Then you got Iggy Pop and the Stooges, Bowie, Strummer, U2, Talking Heads. That shit was all mixed together. They all knew each other. They were swapping producers. A lot of it is that stuff is amazing. A lot of it is absolute garbage. But I feel like you can't pull it apart. You know, I feel like you can't have Bowie without getting U2, unless you want to say something bad about Bowie, and then probably this conversation's over. <laughs> I, I i don't have anything bad to say say about bowie i i uh the the only thing i could, the only thing that that popped in my head when you were talking about that that linkage across just essentially all of those foundational 70s artists that would that would basically shape what modern subculture is is now is just that iggy pop fucking hated the clash too <laughs> so <laughs> just yeah. fucking hated them <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean it's the the clash. The clash are I think they're easy to hate. They're easy to love. They're easy to dismiss. They're easy to get obsessed with. And I think that's a I think that's a good thing. I, I like the Talking Heads, but I've never understood the anyway. Now now I'm just the, the only other album I wanted to mention is so I, I mentioned um, Jimmy Eat World as well mm-hmm. to Dilla, which I was thinking of because of the Arizona um, connection, and you know. I start, first started listening to Jimmy Eat World with this album called uh, Clarity. Clarity, yeah, Clarity, yeah. which I just absolutely loved. And then, frankly, I enjoyed the pop album after that, even though obviously everyone hated them for making a pop album. And since then, they've become a weird, like, adult album-oriented rock band, which I I, I kind of enjoy. Mostly, uh, it's that band is nostalgic for me for where it was uh, in my life. But if you go all the way back, and this is for your listeners who can handle something that's not that hardcore to Static Prevails, that's that al- That's an album from that time, that kind of post-Fugazi era where po- some strand of post-hardcore was becoming emo, but it definitely wasn't the emo that it became. And I think... Some people who have never, ever listened to any Jimmy World voluntarily would enjoy Static Prevails. Maybe, you know, my email is everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. If you're a hardcore kid and you hear this and listen to Static Prevails and you hate it and you hate me, please email me your hatred. Yeah. Well, you know what? No, no. I, uh, that's an awesome plug because I, I don't even think I knew that that album exists. With under, with with this segment of the show, there's no wrong answers. We've had, <laughs> you, we, we've had, Graham, I'll just say this much. We've had some answers that have put my fucking jaw on the ground from people who <laughs> have toured the world in hardcore <laughs> or hardcore adjacent bands. So like for you to be like, yo, that early Jimmy World record, underrated. Not that surprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is it is it is way underrated but i figured also trying to connect 
hardcore people to Jimmy Eat World and getting them to understand that Jimmy Eat World did in a long distant past come out of the hardcore subculture or a subculture of the subculture. I just was hoping to outrage people with that. So please be suitably outraged. I, I, might, I might jump on from there just because I've got one that's sort of a similar example, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, and that is Chumbawamba. <laughs> um, now there, there's some anarchists. Yeah, but you know, a lot of uh, a lot of modern punk listeners uh, perhaps wouldn't know that. Definitely, mainstream listeners only know them for that one song off their eighth <laughs> album. But yeah, died in the wool anarchists doing it better than most of us. They, in fact, to bring back one of your earlier uh, references, had an album with Noam Chomsky. Um, <laughs> Most of this stuff was put out, or a lot of the stuff was put out on uh, uh, Agitprop or Alternative tank te Tentacles. Um, I think their first tape was released on Vegan Policeman Tapes. Um, yeah, underrated band. Uh, no Masters was a label that they released a bunch of stuff on yeah. until they got that one EMI uh, label and then never did anything again. Um, uh, then just briefly... To mention a couple other bands that I, I I think everybody knows Chimbawamba, but I'd love to mention a couple that people just should listen to if they haven't. Uh, one is Appalachian Terror Unit, which is from Huntington, West Virginia, and it's pretty, pretty awesome anarcho-punk if you like that subgenre. And they have a split with Oi Ploy, which is a pretty great place to start. And also less explicitly uh, less explicitly anarchist, but um, uh, explicitly political and leftist is the band Curmudgeon from Boston, Boston, which is just a really amazing uh, group, um, which based on all the other projects they've ended up doing is kind of retroactively a super group. Um, hmm. Yeah, Curmudgeon, uh, Appalachian Terror Unit, which is also a fantastic band name, and Chumbawamba. Hell yeah. I just met with someone today who's working on a dissertation on Appalachian narratives and i'll have to check it out and i'll have to share it with him why, definitely. why not <laughs> hey have you guys heard the new uh, olivia rodrigo album ah uh, i've heard about it yeah. i've heard that people keep comparing it to miley cyrus well i just i i tried to listen to about 30 seconds of it but it was described in two different features i read about it as punk and i thought oh, weird. that'll be interesting to listen to and uh <laughs> I, I think I, punk is such a loose. Apparent. I, I'm gonna, based on this, I'm gonna have to. I'm. I'm gonna have to. Agree. This album had me. These articles had me fired up. You know, it was like <laughs> everyone. Everyone thinks he's just Disney kid, but she's punk. And I was like, weird. I'll take a listen. Damn. So that's my non recommendation of the week. Whatever Olivia Rodrigo's new album is called is not punk in any. I, I don't know what punk is, but that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> they do. They they gave her the Avril Lavigne treatment. Yes. They're like, no, no, you you guys aren't ready for this. This is yeah, pretty yeah. hard stuff. That's especially what they do with Disney or former Disney artists. But it's also just the second, the sophomore album blues for pop stars is we're gonna put some spikes on your jacket. Um, and if you were on Disney, we're gonna hypersexualize you like crazy. The the Avril at the Avril Lavigne comparison was spot on. Um, all right, guys. But I guess my last thing is: uh, is there anything else you w were thinking? Oh, damn, we didn't quite cover that because I have to teach early in the morning and I should go to bed. But also, 
I'm here. What? Anything else you need from me? Because I am here right now. You know, I, 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 Graham, I think you've been more than more than generous with your time. You gave us, you gave us, and frankly, everyone who listens to this, tons to to think about. And yeah, hopefully, we'll be able to just do this again in the near future. The next time we think of a few more questions, yeah. but I, I, dude, I, I, this. This was fucking great, man. It's it was just a pleasure to talk to you. I, I love I love your show. Listen to it at work all the time. And yeah, man, just thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for thanks for doing what you do. It's it's valuable and and uh, really really spreading the word. And I think we'll probably make a generational difference. Oh God, uh, I, that's 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 too much. Um, just I'm just trying. I'm just trying to tell people that they can imagine a different world and they can work towards it. I, I, I think, I think that's enough and it's all, it's all I can do. Um, you can find me at everydayanarchism.com. I guess if you want to connect, I'm doing a series on David Graeber's debt. I'm doing a series on radicalism in the English revolution. I'm not very punk. I think I'll leave it at that.